When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. A Facebook friend shared out an image on my feed of a candy cane that someone had Christianed up a bit for the holidays. When you do a Google search for the origins of candy canes, you get a hodgepodge of stories, but very little in the way of fact. At Wikipedia, they trace the history to the early to mid-1800s, where stick candy is mentioned as part of a confectioner competition. Early recipes for peppermint sticks occur at roughly the same time. We've all seen the colored and flavored striped candy sticks growing up. They're nothing unique. Basically, stick versions of standard hard candy. The cane variety are mentioned a few decades later, but without the color or flavor information. They began an association with Christmas toward the latter half of the 1800s and end up on holiday trees in 1882. However, as often happens with secular or pagan traditions, competing Christian narratives have sprung up around earlier Christian origins of the candy. Interestingly, The Christmas tree has been similarly appropriated with Christian symbols of stars and angels often used as toppers. Historians have explained the earlier pagan traditions around much of what we think of as Christmas, but that doesn't stop Christians from claiming otherwise and rewriting the history to suit their religious narratives. When I was in Sunday school, a lot of what I was taught turned out not to align with actual historic record, written or excavated. Don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to finding ways to integrate cultures or even create a new meaning for an old tradition. After all, that old tradition may well have been a new take on an even older one. But there's a difference between incorporating new meaning into older symbols and claiming that you haven't done that and that the older tradition never existed. I'm perfectly happy to acknowledge that holidays with older pagan roots have been converted into more modern conventional holidays that suit Christian narratives. That is, winter solstice and Christmas are not really the same holiday. Christmas is a reinterpretation of the older holidays in traditions that's Christianized. It definitely still uses those older traditions, but they now mean different things to different people. For example, there are people who celebrate solstice at the same time of year. From a purely technical standpoint, a pagan tree and a Christmas tree are the same thing. But from the perspective of mythological value and meaning, they're entirely different. And so it has become with one of the traditional candies of the season, the peppermint candy cane. The image shared on Facebook asks, what's in a candy cane? and then answers with religious contents, such as letter J for Jesus, referring to the shape. Also regarding the shape, it notes it is similar to a shepherd's staff. It calls the red stripe his blood that was shed for us, and the white is the purity after our sins are washed away, and so on. Just to reiterate, if you're a Christian and you find this cute, that's fine. It's not a problem to view the world from a personal lens and find meaning in the mundane. 
People are hardwired to see patterns. We endow coincidence with meaning quite often. It could be even an exercise in association to ask children what other things a candy cane could be used to symbolize for one's faith. This use of the mundane object as a teaching tool is similar to that game where you scatter random letters and ask people to seek out as many words as they can find in the batch. None of this is problematic. However, that is very different from asserting that this is, in an objective final way, what a candy cane means and why it was created. This type of toxic appropriation sometimes comes in mild but other times more severe forms. From rewriting the history of a piece of candy to wiping out a society that refuses to adopt the new meaning, this is the type of appropriation to be avoided and corrected when it's encountered. Have your Christmas, have your Christian version of these holidays and traditions, enjoy them as you please, or don't observe them at all. But remember to allow others the same courtesy to apply their own meanings and celebrate in their own ways. That being said, this resonates with me not only as a secular person, but also due to my upbringing in the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ taught non-Christian religious holidays were forms of idolatry to be avoided. They taught Christian versions as heretical and unorthodox. Their teaching was that the Bible provided instructions on when and how to honor God, and deviation was sinful and worthy of condemnation. I recall one preacher saying that if Noah had deviated from God's instructions for the ark, had installed even a small window where it didn't belong, it would not have floated. The Church of Christ was the Christian version of Pharisees, never recognizing the irony of working hard to be exactly like the type of Jews Jesus hotly condemned within his own faith. In the churches I attended, people either ignored Christmas altogether or celebrated it as a purely secular holiday. Trees, bells, cookies, elves, Rudolph, secular Santa at the mall, presents, and so on. You could have a tree in your house, but it had to be a symbol of secular concepts. Joy, charity, crass commercialism, whatever floated your yuletide boat. But the teachings of the church around holidays like these left many from the denomination hypervigilant about the pagan roots of many observances. Obviously, I don't think I need to avoid these things any longer, but I still notice when Christians outside of the Church of Christ endow secular or pagan symbols with religious meaning. So, as I ponder the J is for Jesus candy cane image on Facebook, I was thinking about my own history and what I'd been taught. As a result, I was put in mind of a true holiday story from my own past that always makes me laugh. Years ago, I used to live in Orlando. Their main paper is the Orlando Sentinel. And in the days before the internet, comments were made in a form known as letters to the editor. You had to write or type a letter, put it in an envelope, and mail it off to the paper. Then you waited and hoped it would be published. You'd know it was when it appeared in the letters to the editor section a week or two later. Not all letters were published, only the ones chosen by the editors that offered coherent, relevant perspectives on current events and issues. Most papers made an effort to present all sides by choosing the best representative samples of arguments being put forward. So all the uproar you hear about people crying oppression because Facebook and Twitter tagged their comments as factually questionable or banned them altogether, the silencing of voices by big tech, this is not shocking. It's not new. In the past, it was called responsible journalism. Today, it's an infringement on everyone's right to have a published platform with zero restrictions on whatever they want to say, be it lies, slander, or even, from what I can tell these days, dangerous incitements to aggressive violence. 
Alternatively, I do get that having more capacity to express voices also has another edge that offers potential benefits. So I don't want to come off as sounding as though it's all bad, in my opinion. But this is a topic for another day. The point is, I love to send letters to the newspaper and get them published, from the time I was a child. It was so exciting to me to see my name in print. But now that everyone can do it, it's lost a bit of sparkle, at least for me. But I was attending college locally, working part-time, and still living at home with my parents to keep expenses down. In those days, it was common to have a copy of a printed paper in the house every day. And one morning, I read a letter to the editor from a very angry Christian who was railing about losing the true meaning of Christmas, how it was being stripped into a secular holiday with no religious ties to the symbols and the season. This resonated with my anti-Christmas Christian upbringing and rekindled all of my holier-than-thou feels. I fired off my own letter rebutting the idea that Christmas is a Christian holiday, describing the pagan roots, and noting the irony and hypocrisy of any Christian unleashing their resentment at others for breaking with traditional meanings and symbols of a religious holiday. As was the process, I started to check for my letter in the paper about a week after I mailed it out. My, how times have changed. With forums directly under articles where all of us can now post in real time, what can I say? I'm a relic of a bygone era. But after some days, I felt the rush of seeing my rebuttal printed among the letters. Bear in mind that in addition to choosing which letters were coherent and reasonable to print, the newspaper editors also reserved the right to edit them. Just to be clear, this was generally done for space considerations, with editors trying to keep the relevant points intact, but hoping to publish as many submissions as possible in a limited space. Sometimes they would print just a good portion of a letter, sometimes most of a letter, and more rarely the entire thing. Being as verbose as a child as I am today, mine were often edited for brevity before publication. So initially, when I saw some portions were altered, I wasn't concerned. But then I noticed the editors had changed it up a bit in later paragraphs. This disturbed me considerably more because these appeared to be stylistic edits, not cuts for space. Cutting a few sentences or even paragraphs here and there to reduce redundancy or irrelevant points is one thing. But altering phrasing is another matter. Still, it was basically the same letter, just with some of the wording altered. However, like Peter Jackson's take on Lord of the Rings... By the time I got to the end, I was wondering if it actually was my letter. The first half was incredibly similar, but at the end, the writer had added a line that suggested Christians should return Christmas to the pagans, and while they're at it, hand back their religion to the Jews. My immediate reaction to reading that line was, I didn't write that, but I certainly wish I had. When I got to the end and saw the name of the author, I had a good laugh. It turns out it was penned by my older brother, a former pastor who still lived in Florida but no longer at home. I guess our mutual upbringing resonated with the original letter and triggered similar responses. Oh, and one more thing. As if that weren't funny on its own, my brother is a junior. He has a unique name but is named after my late father. And since this was in the days when my father was still alive the days of answering machines and telephone books, quite a lot of angry Christians were able to utilize those resources to show their Christmas spirit by leaving my father threatening messages for many days after the rebuttal was published. Thanks, Junior, and Merry Christmas. 
That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.